wonderful listeners of Once and Future Grinnell, and thank you so, so very much for joining me. My name is Ann Harris. I have the honor of serving as the 14th president of Grinnell College, and I'm also the host of Once and Future Grinnell, where we are exploring all the possibilities of an institution as it dreams into its own future. So I always start off with this wonderful piece of music uh, from Henry Purcell that was actually contributed by uh, one of our listeners. Um, And I always do so with a a certain amount of wryness and sincerity all at once. Uh, Wryness because uh, it is this very grand uh, piece of music for a one hour radio show, Um, but also sincerity because it's dedicated to King Arthur whom you'll see in my introduction is uh, himself related to the idea of strategic planning at the college. So um, as I usually do, I'm going to spend about 10 minutes um, kind of introducing the concept of uh, that we're examining this week together within the larger framework of strategic planning. And our, our strategic planning principle this week is health and well-being. And then I will have the tremendous pleasure of being joined by two students from the um, Student Health and Wellness Student Advisory Group, Molly Nelson and Kate Kwasniewski. And so I will look forward, oh, as I know you are, um, to hearing their perspectives on health and well-being to, you know, how very important student voices are um, to my thinking, to strategic planning, um, and let alone on this very, very important issue here. So we will um, commence with the introduction and the time goes fast. That is what I've learned in uh, this, my eighth episode of the show. So first and foremost is this mention, I keep mentioning this King Arthur business. So um, I'm a medievalist by training. I was trained in medieval art history um, at the University of Chicago. And uh, every time you're a medievalist, you're actually also studying the 19th century, which is really when the Middle Ages were kind of brought back again into study, into um, a kind of serious analysis, cultural analysis, and a lot of imitation. Um, It's very interesting to me now where medieval studies are in terms of its own analysis of the political uses of the Middle Ages, including uh, the term, for example, Anglo-Saxon, or the way medieval movies make their way into our lives. A lot of video games have medieval elements to them. So there's, there's something about the medieval imaginary that is very present in our modern day lives. That's a little bit of the reason why the name of the show, as I'm about to explain, is connected to the Middle Ages and why I love to start it with this wonderful uh, piece by Henry Purcell that's dedicated to King Arthur and his round table. So the show Once in Future Grinnell, the show title Once in Future Grinnell comes from um, actually a young adult fiction work um, by T.W. White called The Once in Future King. And it is dedicated to, it's a, it's a multi-series uh, work, but The Ones in Future King deals with the childhood and education of the man or the boy who would grow up to be King Arthur. And it has this wonderful set of elements to it. It has um, the wizard Merlin, who is there as the teacher of the boy, Arthur. Um, and like I say, every single week, it allows me to celebrate our faculty uh, and our staff and all the educators at Grinnell as wizards in education. They are magical in every way. Um, and and of course, to underscore the importance of education in becoming in selfhood and today in health and well-being how do we tie the two together how do the two connect to each other um and how can as i hope we'll explore with molly and kate how do we come to understand the excellence we prize in education as contributing to health and well-being when in fact we know that with pressure rigor, this all-important term in academe, um, stress, workload, anxiety, very often that educational setting is actually not what contributes to health and well-being. Um, And you see that in the book, Once in Future King. You also see it in the wonderful um, Disney film that was called The Sword in the Stone, in allusion to King Arthur pulling the sword out of the stone, which is what makes him recognizable as king. Um, you, you see that tension, you see the, the difficulty, and I'm, gonna, I'm always gonna use the word rigor with a great deal of desire to analyze that term. 
um, what it means and what it does. Um, so you see, you see the young boy Arthur, you know, really um, struggling to learn, and and that being incredibly difficult, and then that can also be incredibly elating all at the same time. So this, by way of introduction, why the title "Once and Future Grinnell," based on the "Once and Future King." Um, giving us an opportunity to think about education and selfhood um, and also always where our education goes, where the Grinnellian education goes. Um, Grinnellians, graduates of Grinnell, faculty and staff of Grinnell, um, friends of Grinnell tend to be people who care a great deal about what is in our mission stated as the common good. The common good appears very frequently, of course, in the public sphere. It appears in places where systemic change happens, where social justice is practiced um, and, and, and achieved, I would say. Um, and so this is very important to think about that strategic planning, where we think about the college going in the next three to five to 10 to 20 years in terms of that commitment. So every new president, as I am, of a college is asked to present a strategic vision for the college, a strategic plan for the college. And because of the pandemic, I did not want to engage right away <clears throat> into producing a plan and then starting right away on initiatives and projects. The big initiative of this academic year was to make it, to make it to the end as we are. We only have a couple weeks left of classes and then we have this marvelous in-person commencement that I can't wait for. Um, and so <clears throat> what I did end up doing was using that time granted by the pandemic to explore principles. And I, have, of course, have five. One is community. We had two sessions on that. The other, educational excellence and continuity. The third, diversity, equity, and inclusion. The fourth, health and well-being. And then next week, we'll start on financial sustainability. And all of these are principles that have distinctive characteristics about Grinnell within them that we want to explore. So when it comes to community, the governance structures at Grinnell, the self-governance principle at Grinnell. When it comes to educational excellence, it's that incredible individualized curriculum that makes us so distinctive. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, the way that Grinnell College has led um, with, for example, the Grinnell Science Project, the, the GSP, um, the way that it seeks to continue to lead, to deepen its commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, to look at um, place in a, in a specifically a PWI, a predominantly white institution, to deepen the chapter of Grinnell College and anti-racist work, um, which is really being in, in, in full development now. When it comes to health and well-being, the distinctions I are really those to discover at this point because um, health and well-being is not a fixed state. It's one that we strive for and that we seek to arrive to, and it's something that we seek to hold in balance. And so with health and well-being, in some ways, it's the least defined of all the five principles. The, you know, when it comes to financial sustainability, our endowment is certainly distinctive. And distinctive means let's pay attention to that. Let's see how it shapes us in, in so many different ways. Um, so with health and well-being, I feel like we're in more uncharted territory, and I'm very glad about that uh, because it's something that I think is very important for our community to experience and for our community to model. We do hard things at Grinnell College. We are in a place um, that does incredible work in a very condensed and intense way. And there's two ways I want to point out by way of introduction here. One is we do things in intense ways because uh, students are with us for four years, most of the time, sometimes five, <clears throat> sometimes there's a sixth year to finish up. But students with us are with us for four years and the change, the transformation, the accomplishments of those four years are incredibly intense. It's This is why I do consider Grinnell faculty and staff wizards. There's a wizardry to it, there's a magic to it. Um, and the students are wizards too, for that matter, because of all that they're achieving. All that's changing for them and around them and in their work, in their thinking, in their skill development, professional development, personal development, identity development. It's an incredible time, the ages of 18 to 22, um, but any four years that are as packed as these are would reveal that. 
That's the first thing. The second intensity comes from being a small liberal arts college in a rural setting, which the large majority, the enormous majority of America's small liberal arts colleges are in rural settings. We are part of a big movement in the 19th century that sought to create places of idle, I-D-Y-L-L, there was never anything idle, but you know, idols and, and ideals and places of respite. Sometimes the idea was that it was far from Sin City. Other times that it was far from uh, the corrupting influences of, of politics and other human endeavors. And to just be unto themselves. Well, <clears throat> I think that was always a pressured situation, to tell you the truth. I would say today, with the permeability and the, uh, the vibrancy of our human society and our human communities, there's an intensity to trying to be almost all things to each other in ways that are really difficult and really challenging. And I would just invite you to think about religious celebration, about um, about uh, different identities, racial identity, um, sexual identity, that, that in a small setting are simply going to have less diversity and that diversity being needed for the full experience of personhood. And so, so the way that we seek to be a complete place for complete people, right? A whole place for whole people also provides its own intensity. There are very few distractions at a small liberal arts college. So um, those are intensities that I would say we we prize in many ways. And that's, that's another reason that people can be very bonded at a small liberal arts college is precisely because there you, you don't just walk down the street and, I don't know, go to a Broadway show, right? You walk down the street and you're going to bump into somebody you know and then maybe go into a coffee shop and start talking or work on a project together or take, a, a, you know, take some time to just be human to each other. So that's a very interesting aspect of this life that, faculty and staff who teach here have committed to for their entire lifetimes and whose students commit to for four years or actually less with all the wonderful global opportunities that we have. So as I as I finish this introduction and I turn to Molly and Kate, um, I will ask them to introduce themselves, where they are in their, in their trajectory at Grinnell in terms of which year they're in, um, what their areas of studies are, how they would define themselves. Um, and then I'm very keen to learn more and for our listeners to learn more about what the Shaw, this is the Student Health and Wellness um, Student Advisory Group does and how we, how we can you know sit here in very real time, talk to each other about how we might partner for this work of health and well-being, which I think of all the, again, principles is, is kind of the, the least defined. When I wrote these essays that will eventually be put up on a website and so forth, but when I, I wrote essays about each of the five strategic principles and for um, health and well-being, I touched upon belonging again. I touched upon workload and time. I'm asking us to think about space and place, this whole idea of being a rural campus. Um, also very interested in the new role of restorative practices at the college and the thrive principles that have to do with transparency and health and well-being, um, uh, vulnerability and, and many other things. Um, and then last but not least, by any means, the co-curriculum, how life outside the classroom also shapes health and well-being. <clears throat> so I will now turn things over to my two wonderful guests and Molly or Kate, whichever of you would wish to go first, if you'd introduce yourselves and I am pen poised and at the ready to learn from you. So grateful for you being here. Hi, um, I'm Molly. I am a fourth year and a Spanish and psych double major. Um, so graduating pretty soon. Um, I am currently in Seattle, Washington, living in, um, my family home with my parents. Um, and I am the vice president of NAMI, um, the National Alliance on Mental Illness on campus. Um, as you said, I'm also um, a member of the Student Advisory Council for Shaw. Um, and then also something that's pretty big as well in my life is um, I work for Disability Resources um, and run the social media there. Um, 
so yeah, that that's sort of what's informed my perspective on health and well-being. Oh, that's fantastic, Molly. Thank you, and thank you for for all that you're doing. Um, I just think, I mean, this is what I mean by the co-curriculum, right? That that amplitude that's there. And then thinking about you being a psychology major and a Spanish ma- double major, that's that's very fantastic. Kate, how about yourself? Yeah, hi. Uh, so my name is Kate Kwasniewski. I am also a fourth year, and I am also a psychology major, um, no double major. Um, I'm currently living right on Main Street in Grinnell, which has been really nice. Um, so, like Molly, I'm president of NAMI, um, and like Molly, I'm also on the Student Health and Wellness Council. So Molly and I have actually been working together since we first got to the college, so it's kind of come full circle now that we're about to graduate. That's uh, that's really beautiful. I mean, those powerful relationships that are created. Now, Molly, will you be able to join us for graduation? Will you be able to fly in, or are you going to do distance this year? I, I'm going to do distance. Um, it's, it was a very hard decision, <laughs> but, imagine. um, yep. yeah, it's starting, starting post-grad plans really quickly. Um, uh, everything's moving very quickly. Absolutely. So, no, yeah. absolutely. And of course, of course, um, this is a, this is an interesting tangent of health and well-being it's off campus but um you know the the word alum or alumni comes from the latin word for to nurture and to nourish so i hope that you feel nourished as an alum and come back to campus we'll we'll do well there's always a special thing to being back on campus together so um i'm well i'd like to just jump right into your your leadership roles with the national alliance um you, you called it nami right it's a it's a powerful name so is that one that you um, created at the college in connection with a national organization. Was it here before you got here? Or I would love to hear more about that because, of course, mental illness and, and mental health, mental well-being, um, that's all got to be a part of the conversation. Yeah, so NAMI actually existed before we got here. I think it was pretty new when we were here. Um, so at some point, there was something arranged with the Iowa branch of NAMI and we got our own branch on campus. Um, but we kind of inherited it starting our like second, third years. Um, and NAMI is sort of why we approached Dean Mason about starting the council, the student health and wellness council. Um, yeah, because obviously mental health is a huge part of the college experience. Um, and it's a very important thing to, you know, actively work towards. Molly, is there anything that you'd want to add to that? I'm just, I'm really impressed by the organization. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, Kate and I both joined at the same time in our our first year. Um, and I think it's been something that's continued to be extremely important for us. Um, and I've just really loved to look back on our four years and see how much the club has just grown in terms of impact on campus. Um, we do a lot of wellness-focused like events for students, including things surrounding like awareness, like documentaries, bathroom readers, resource lists, um, just wellness breaks and things like that. But it's been really a long-term goal, I think, of both Kate um, and me to have more of that advocacy aspect and that impact on campus. Um, And I think I'm very excited to leave kind of a legacy of having this student advisory council and having NAMI have continued involvement in that. Um, It's something that like makes me very happy and kind of, yeah, it does feel like coming full circle um, in the end. I think legacy is exactly the right word that really is. And and the momentum of that. So I've been very interested. I have two questions that emerge from this. One is the the way that we think about mental health and mental well-being and even the language, right? So um, 
uh, Molly, you work in disability in the disability office, and I know, believe it or not, in in, in medieval studies, there's a large um, growth in disability studies, and we spend a lot of time talking about even language, right? Even the word disability has things that we probably want to change within it. Um, and I deeply appreciate the term, you know, neurodiversity, for example, um, that's out there. So I'm thinking a lot about about mental health, mental um, well-being. Um, I see the, the term mental illness in the title of the organization. I'm intrigued by the way the pandemic has put a lot of telehealth uh, as more available than it was before. And of course, you know, you probably all knew this, but we all administratively had to, well, several of us had to learn about the fact that, you know, you can only practice, um, you can be a practitioner in a particular state. And we had all these issues between different states and so forth. So my first question to you is what you see as the role of telehealth maybe continuing beyond the pandemic as a resource for mental health, but then also, of course, and we'll probably spend a lot of time on this, what can be done to support mental well-being here on campus, right? So there's always going to be that support of excellent counselors and therapists, but what is the college's role in doing that? So that's the first set of questions. And then secondly, maybe, maybe further in our hour, I'd love to talk to you both about where you think an organization like the one you've started can connect with faculty and staff health and well-being. Um, so you can see two very different avenues here of, of conversation. But um, yeah, telehealth in terms of mental health support and then also what you see as growing from the things you've done, the documentaries and so forth. Um, maybe we'll touch on workload, other things. But but you know, what is the college and, and what is that responsibility between the college and the individual um, for well-being? Um, I can start out Great. by talking about telehealth, which is something that um, Kate and I have had some experience with discussing on the council. Um, because again, as, as you've said, um, telehealth has emerged as kind of a way to continue supporting students. Um, I would say that I think in Iowa specifically, um, telehealth is necessary to cover some gaps mm -hmm. um, in terms of uh, treatment options for students that are just not available. Um, also in terms of having more diversity and if someone yes. wants a specific, um, someone else who shares a specific identity um, with them that, that's not available, you know, in the middle of Iowa in a small town, um, that, that's also another option. I think something that Kate and I both agree, though, is that like in person can never really be fully replaced by telehealth, especially in terms of mental health things where connection is so important. Mm -hmm. um, I think we all know from the pandemic, um, doing things over um, <laughs> video chat and video call is nowhere near um, the same as doing things face-to-face. -face. So that's also definitely a consideration of like, this is not the end-all be-all, like we're gonna go to telehealth and fix all of our problems. I, I think it might be necessary though to, you know, while we're working on fixing the long-term issues. Yep, and more hiring and so forth, yeah. Kate, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I would agree with everything that Molly said. I do think, I think that especially as a liberal arts college in rural Iowa, there is, you know, sometimes a difficulty in finding counselors who practice in this area or, you know, are willing to come work in the middle of, you know, the middle of nowhere, Iowa. Um, and so I think that telehealth is particularly important in the context of Grinnell College um, just to fill some of that shortage and some of the gaps. Um, and yeah, in Iowa more generally, um, because there is a shortage of mental health practitioners in the entire state. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, like Molly said, face-to-face -face counseling is always going to be necessary um, and is always going to probably have just a little bit of an edge over telehealth, in my opinion. 
I'm, I'm really interested to hear you both valorize that because, I, you know, you're right. There's this kind of, oh, look, we can do this. It's much more efficient and it'll bridge, it'll collapse distance and so forth. But um, for you both to valorize that in person, I mean, this is, of course, what is so valuable about a small liberal arts college is that we're here, you know, together. Um, and I'm and I'm also, yeah, I always think about that that middle middle of everywhere, middle of nowhere uh, dichotomy that that we live within. it's It's really fascinating because um, the the source of mental health and the recognition of mental health, like how, you know, how do you know it when you're living it, especially in an environment like ours that changes all the time, right? So there's a test or there's an event or there's a speaker that comes and just blows you away, you know, those kinds of things. Um, how has your work with NAMI and, and, and all the things that you're doing, what does it seek to do? Is it about resources for students? Is it about providing spaces of respite um because in some ways you know i think of this as the other part of the education of grinnell college right like yes tons of things in the classroom but then those other life skills you know that are happening outside the classroom and i want to give a quick footnote you spoke of mental health and the need for it in, in the state of iowa i i try to think of all the different ways that grinnell can partner and create coalitions with with the state with businesses and so forth i was and local government. I was so intrigued during the hiring of the police chief. I went to a town hall and the questions were, you know, what are the issues that, that a police chief needs to deal with? And the number one issue was mental health, rural mental health, mental health in rural communities. So what you're saying about the college pertains to Grinnell, to Powashee County, to the entire state. So I just really wanted to underscore, and, and again, thank you for your connection with that national organization, because this is coming up in other ways. And I keep wondering about, you know, if the state can make mental health a, a priority, there are so many incentives and so many things that, that could that could come to develop um, to develop that aspect. And I was just glad that it was said out loud instead of, you know, oh, no, we'll deal with our problems, you know, deep inside. So <laughs> that was that was healthy, if you want to put it that way. Um, but yeah, um, in your work, is it about providing resources to students? You, you mentioned awareness, resources. What do you think are the elements of well-being? And and let's focus on mental health maybe for now, but what do you think are those elements? And I would like to ask about where you see academic workload um, in that. Yeah, so I think Molly and my work has always sort of been a combination of trying to forward resources and also providing sort of a space for students to come take a rest. Um, so NAMI in particular, we try to split it about half and half between doing advocacy work and doing work with organizations like Shaw um, and taking time for self-care for our members because that is a really hard thing to make the time to do, especially at a college as rigorous as this one. Mm. Um, but I think primarily something that we've found is that there are resources on campus, but a lot of the problem comes in communication and in whether students realize that resources exist or that they do have access to certain things. Um, so we found that a lot of our focus has been on, you know, sort of getting the word out about different things and trying to make resources more readily accessible. Powerful, yes. Um, I'd say with that, like, part of the thing that, or part of what NAMI, I think, has really done well um, has been working with other um, groups on campus, whether it mm. be, like, SEPC, like, um, different departments to put on events, um, and, and even, like, a pub quiz, um, with peer educators, I, I think that that's been one of our strengths is trying to not only, you know, spread awareness about resources, but also increasing some of the cross um, campus communication. Mm -hmm. um, because often people, like Kate said, they're, they're very interested in, in what NAMI does or what resources are available, but um, it's kind of 
shocking almost to me when when people don't know about certain things just because I'm like so in it all the time um, and and working with it all the time. But I I think as Kate said, like communication has been something that student groups on campus have acknowledged as one of the main issues where groups are working on the same goals, like even departments are working on the same goals, but more in parallel rather than um, helping across one another. And it's funny because it's such a small campus that you wouldn't, maybe that's part of why we we have this issue is we, we think that we know everything that's going on, but I don't know. It's It's been interesting to see. <clears throat> That's that's just amazing because I think about, um, yeah, right, if you centralize everything. So when you've got a small institution like ours, you tend not to centralize because why would you centralize when it's small? But with centralization comes visibility, right, that that may not be there when it's a lot of that parallel work. And so uh, so this is part that was part of my motivation for centralizing a little bit. Um, the diversity, equity, and inclusion office, right? So that now there's there's like a, a, a leadership team, still have a lot of diffusion, but a leadership team for that recognizability. So I think as, you know, Shaw kind of keeps growing and, um, and having a student advisory council, I think does give it more visibility to students. I think that's really important. I'm wondering, and dear listener, this is going to us getting a little tactical here, but I'm wondering if you've had any connections with the first year experience course, which is dedicated to connecting students with their resources, because that would be a great place for them to to start to understand all the all the work that you've been doing. I don't know if you've had any connection with the first year experience course. Aha. <laughs> yeah, not, not yet. Um, but yeah. That might be something in future years that I would recommend to that leadership team is that they reach out and you'll let me know who your next, you know, um, executive officers are in in the organization. Um, so you mentioned, Kate, I believe it was you mentioned time, time for self care, and I think time is incredibly important. It's one of the subcategories of the essays, workload and time. Um, in this wonderful report that we ran in 2019 and that we're going to run every two years called the Thriving Quotient, there are all these different elements of thriving. And, you know, results were good in that, you know, 75 to 80% of students reported, you know, thriving or thriving a great deal. Of course, we're going to be very focused on the 20 to 25% that don't feel like they're thriving. We also noticed some um, disparities in identity. So um, black and Hispanic, uh, Latinx is the terminology, depends on what what survey you're using. Uh, but black and Latinx students reported lower levels of thriving than um, Asian, Asian American, uh, actually international and white students. And so we're paying a lot of close attention to that. It's something that I'd actually love, I'd love to read that report with the student advisory group so we could kind of process it together. But the thing that came up the most was time. Students who had higher levels of thriving also felt like they had a better better agency over their time, not even necessarily more time, but more agency over their time. So I'm wondering if we can talk from the student experience, understanding that you're speaking about your own experiences, not everybody's, but talk a little bit about maybe the strategies or the challenges that you found in that academic work load and your health and well-being. And you can speak broadly or personally, whichever you want. Yeah, please go ahead. I found that um, I think this trajectory is fairly typical for Grinnell students, but I found that, you know, you start out as a first year and you have to get used to the college academic workload um, and eventually you get it and you hit the sweet spot and then you know, you get a leadership position in a club or you're elected to a position in an organization. And I found that throughout my four years, I've just kept sort of collecting things around campus that I've been doing. Um, And I think that's pretty typical for most of my friends as well. And so it seems like there's a culture at Grinnell that whenever you finally find that you have enough time, that sort of you know, a signal for some pressure to add something else to your plate. Um, And I think that that's a pretty universal thing. Like there's this pressure and culture to just do as much as possible and to have as many experiences as possible and 
take on as many leadership roles as you possibly can, um, maybe at the detriment of, you know, time for self-care or mental well-being and things like that. Powerfully put, Molly, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, I also want to add that I think this, this culture extends beyond just, like, the students and extends to faculty to everyone on campus and then I almost get this idea that if you're having some sort of mental health problem then it's kind of your responsibility to like go see a counselor like do that on your own time get better figure it out Mm. and then come back and maybe that's just how I kind of felt when I was struggling with mental health. I had a particularly bad semester and in, in uh, I think second year where I just burnt out completely um, and was not in a great place. And it just felt like, you know, no one, I don't know. My friends were all very supportive. Everyone was very supportive, but at the same time, I still heard this like, everyone needs to be doing everything all the time and even though it wasn't being directed at me I think you know you you internalize that and you think I need to be doing all of these things and I can't let go of anything or else I'll be letting myself and other people down and from from that perspective I, I think people need to be mindful of what message they're sending through their own behavior mm-hmm. like I certainly was not sending a great message to others about well-being in that time of my life um but you know I I think it goes to to like everyone at the college whether it be faculty or students um sending the message that you're taking care of your own well-being and that's not something that's embarrassing or a waste of time yeah Um, I I think that's really important I think it's something we're going to have to talk about and bring out into the open. That's why I'm so grateful for your work of, you know, awareness raising that that you're doing. And we'll have to find out ways. Now, that first year experience course is a place to talk about it. But I hear a lot of the same things from faculty and staff colleagues, too. This and, you know, and if I'm very honest with you, I'll share a, a story, you know, that there's almost a fear of not being able to demonstrate that you're working hard. Right. That like it's got to be demonstrable um, at all times. And so, I, I mean, I remember when I first got here as the dean in summer of 2019, I found out about the oratorio singers. I was so excited. It was this volunteer singing group. And so I, I went and I immediately was like, oh, you know, humanity, beauty, truth. It was just magnificent. And then I worried, like, should I be here? Shouldn't wouldn't people expect the dean to be working? And rehearsals were from 7 to 9 p.m. at night. And I had a a person who's now become a close friend, you know, say, absolutely not. This is the very best modeling that you can do. So it seems strange to say, and I'm and I'm probably going to go back to doing it as even as president, Um, even though I have to confront my own like, oh, well, shouldn't I appear busy at all times doing administrative work? If we see time and as you said so beautifully, Kate, self-care as part of what we need to do right not as an extra that if you can possibly it does change the conversation and and i i take your point molly about culture because you know academics i mean there's no it's not nine to five you know like you you read all the time or you write when the muse comes or whatever and i remember when i was raising my children when they were very very young my son oliver who's now um uh, up at McAllister, uh and having a wonderful wonderful time in his first year but um, he was a big time dreamer. And he would just, when he was like five years old, he would just lie in the grass and look up at the sky. <laughs> and I would call a friend of mine who was in child psychology and say, I don't know, I think there's something wrong with them. He's just looking at the sky. And she was like, oh my gosh, do not schedule him for classes. Do not make him take a craft class. Like just let him be. And, and I've always admired my son for having that kind of you know self-calibration where he can just tune out into that time that you're talking about. I don't think this is insurmountable. I do think it needs to be talked about. I mean, if you, you know, one can go all the way to a critique of capitalism and its emphasis on labor and all those things. And I will tell you this, when I had the faculty and staff town hall about health and well-being, labor 
and the valuation of labor and what was what is worthwhile. Nobody's afraid of working hard. It's about the labor being worthwhile or something that gives you energy or takes energy away, those kinds of things. So that leads me to this other question that I wanted to touch upon with you both, which is kind of student connection to or awareness of faculty and staff health and well-being. How, how much do you think there's, and since you're in that work of awareness, which is so important for public health, how much awareness do you think there is about faculty? Like, what are your thoughts um, on faculty and staff health and well-being? I think that when I was a first year and when I was new to the college, I think that it was a lot more you were a lot more separated from professors and you had sort of this conception of what they were in your head. But as I've gotten closer to graduation, I've gotten closer to faculty. Mm. um, And the further I go in my academic career, the more I realize that faculty are sometimes even more overworked than students are. um, And a lot of the time are just as tired um, and they just, you know, don't feel like, it's their place to admit that, especially to, you know, intro classes full of first year students. But maybe if you're doing research with a professor in your fourth year, they will let you know how tired they are. Um, But it takes a building of trust. Um, And so I think by the time that students realize that faculty are just as tired as they are, everyone has been so, you know, indoctrinated into the culture of like such hard work all the time. um, that at that point, it's you know, really hard to let that go. Wow. Powerful statement. Yeah. 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 I definitely think that, um, I've, as Kate said, more recently started to like notice when professors are stressed or overwhelmed with things. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I think it's really in a lot of ways, um, helpful to me as a student for some of my professors to admit um feeling tired or overworked or you know modifying assignments or things because they simply don't have the time to grade them um and then i i almost wonder sometimes if professors are assigning students so much work or we're doing this giant project that involves all of these things if they're doing that because they feel like they have to mm-hmm. and that's part of being here even though they might not even have the time mm-hmm. to do this or it's something that's really hard for them to take on um, and to help students through and then it's almost like a vicious cycle of we're all stressed we all think we should be stressed oh, and that's, that's a good you know idea. like yeah. If, yeah. if your professor believes that they they yeah. think they should be stressed because they're at the school and that everyone else is stressed. And, and that's who, who we're getting our messaging from. I think a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but in some ways I, I wouldn't say professors should not admit that they're stressed because it almost has the opposite effect when professors are like, Oh man, this semester has been rough for me. I, I think, I think it's helpful um, in a lot of ways, especially if they're open to being flexible with students and working with them through. Oh, this, through is, this is incredible, and I, I just want you to know we're we're going to be honoring the things that you're saying because it's it's already there in some ways. So the the pandemic really brought this home, right? It was everybody was at the at the the limit point, and there was a big call this time last year about flexibility. In fact, in our conversations, we kept saying flexibility is an equity principle because students were going home to all sorts of different living situations, like everything that had kind of held it together in terms of, yeah, we can do this, that whatever that that structure or that, that yeah, that structure was that held us in place with all this hard work, all of a sudden was just completely dissolved. And then we really saw all that hard work kind of for what it was, which was just impossible to do in, in a pandemic in the same way. There were lots of people who said, I will not lower my standards. I must maintain my rigor. There were lots of people who said, what does that mean in a pandemic? You know, and then what does that mean anytime, not just in a pandemic itself? And so I want to point out to you both that the Thrive Principles, the V of Thrive Principles is vulnerability. And to, to, to show vulnerability, I really take your point 
that vulnerability and trust are interconnected, the two of them. So it makes sense, right, that it would be upper class students who would maybe see that side of faculty members more. But I, I also think owning up front and, and many faculty, myself included, will talk about their time when they were undergraduate students. And it wasn't clear at all that they were going to go on and become PhDs and you know do all these other things. But those stories are hard to come by because let me tell you, and here's the thing, vulnerability is probably one of the least valued things in graduate programs. Graduate programs are highly competitive. And I'm saying this to you like, I'm starting to appreciate what faculty and staff come out of these graduate programs into a small liberal arts setting. I think I'm going to use the word sometimes trauma. You know, it, it's really an intense learning environment. Doesn't mean it's not getting better. It doesn't mean that they're not thinking the same thoughts. But, but I really think about valuing vulnerability and, and my goodness, what on earth that's going to mean. I think it means creating those spaces that you're talking about, those places of trust as well that, that we can have. Um, but that's, that's really important, I think, for us to all understand each other's work and labor. So there are institutions that have these almost kind of grid things that say, okay, dear faculty member, as you make your syllabus, please consider that your students are doing these things. And they literally time it out by the hour. They're going to do, you know, what is it? Two, I forget what the standard is at Grinnell, and I really should know it. Um, two hours outside of class for every hour in class, roughly. Okay, everybody's smiling because who knows if that's really what it is. Um, a certain amount for work. You know, 80% of Grinnell students have a job, whether it's two hours a week or 20 hours a week. Um, and so that's, you know, let's factor that in. Time for the co-curricular, the leadership piece. And of course, the tendency is to fill out the whole thing until it adds up to like an 80-hour week. And it doesn't leave any time for fun, right? Staring at the sky, um, coming down off of a really rough week. And so so then you sometimes you get these behaviors of like, we're going to have a party to, because we can't come down, right? The energy is so high. And so, so that's another conversation that I want to have. I don't see us filling in little charts, but I do see us creating awareness of the whole student, not just the you know psychology student or the art history student, but the whole student. And so I, I'm looking forward to that work and, and to doing that. And it's just awareness raising, like, oh yeah, when I'm doing the syllabus, first of all, students are doing three other syllabi like mine, and, and, and. And so how do we make that, um, again, something where there's respite built in there? Another question I'm very interested in asking you is, about your built environment, your living environment. Now, I know this year is unusual, and Molly, you're in Oregon, if I, yeah, right? Um, and Kate, you're right down, down the street on Main Street. But when you're on campus, what role, and I say this to you as an administrator who has only walked through the residence halls once, as an administrator who's working on this new downtown student residence with um, Ajay Associates, these incredible architects who, are, who have spent a lot of time talking to at least 50 different students and multiple groups of students. How much is your lived environment a space of health and well-being? Can you shed some light on what administrators, faculty, and staff should be thinking about when we're thinking about these upcoming residence hall renovations that we're doing? and. So it's it, literally it's, a, it's something I'm I'm quite blind to. How much does your living environment? And then our our last question will be about what gives you a sense of health and well being. So let's let's go into let's go into your residence halls first. <laughs> How, is that a place of health and well being? How could it be more so? I I think that um, so I'm I'm someone who lived on. Um, loose third my first year then moved into a project house um, called eco house for my second year and then moved back into loose so all of that was on south campus basically eco house was just like across the street um, and I think there is something that forms like a connection to this, this area on campus, um, a feeling of this being my home and my location. Um, I, I think that more than that, it's probably the connections I made with other students and the intentional communities that we've, mm -hmm. we've formed, especially when I lived in a, a project house 
in particular, um, we had meetings every week. We set goals together. We cooked together. We cleaned together. We ate together. It was, um, I guess, a, a different form of togetherness that I'd never experienced prior to college. And I think also in a dorm as well, um, I grew used to this feeling of having people around me who maybe I didn't necessarily know that well or were maybe not my friends per se, but just a feeling of being surrounded um, by other people. I don't know how helpful this is in terms of building new campus at, um, or new, new spaces for students to live, but I definitely have formed a deep connection with with that place on campus. I mean, it's it's a really interesting decision, right? That colleges and universities made to as well, small liberal arts colleges especially to have these residence halls. In fact, the whole American higher education system connects education with communal living. And I just want to point out, the European system does not at all, right? You go to university in France, Switzerland, Ghana, any you know, actually it's it's I would almost say the global system. Um, you're going to find very few residence halls. Most of the time you live in an apartment or you live at home. So that's one of, there's a great book called Living on Campus. That's the history of the American, uh, the, the author says dormitory, we say residence hall um, here at Grinnell. But that is one of those like, wow, that seems so natural and obvious that people would live and learn together. It's not. It was a decision made early, early on. So I, you've said very helpful things in terms of this idea of, you know, the feeling of, of being surrounded of this kind of proximity. Um, of course, intentional communities is fascinating to me. Cooking and cleaning together, that is really interesting because that, that's that home moment, right? And I love the English language. I grew up in Switzerland speaking French, so English is my second language. And I remember that I remember the day when I was like home and house. And in, in France, there's maison. That's it. You just have a maison. And I was like, wow, English is awesome because home and house, are, they have a different feel to them, right? You can live in a house, but when you come home, that's, a, that's an amazing feeling. So, Kate, what, what would you want to add here to considerations of the lived environment, the built environment, um, the residence hall as, as a, a connection to well-being? Yeah, so I've actually lived on north, south, and east campus throughout my time here, and now I'm in a house off campus, so I would say I've really gotten the full experience, Um, and I think think that that element of hominess and feeling like you are at home is the most important part of the lived environment. I... My second year, I had this really tiny room in Langen Hall on the third floor, right by the stairs. So the ceiling slanted weirdly, and there was one tiny window. But it ended up being my favorite room out of all four years because it was just so cozy. And I lived with a roommate that is still one of my best friends. And, you know, like we really made it like a home and like a sort of sanctuary on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think. You know, I guess what I learned from living in Lincoln is one, that it would be really nice to have a lot more windows in residence halls um, is something I would say is important. But, you know, also that I think community and, you know, being able to turn a space into a home, you know, because East Campus is a little bit industrial almost. Mm. They're very nice. They're the most climate controlled. They have giant windows, but it feels sometimes more like a hotel than a home, whereas North Campus is way older, and so it's a lot cozier. Um, And sometimes I think that spaces like that lead to an easier sense of community. There is a lot to dig into there. There really is. I think this is just the, the tip of that iceberg because... Um, I mean, you've said such powerful words, both of you. I mean, even this idea of, of hominess, you know, and of course, I think about 20% of Grinnell students being international students and so creating home away from home. Um, I also think of, um, you know, having having learned from from students of color about what it means to, to take to be home and, and the whole physicality of home, um, anything from hair care to food products, you know, that, that may not be as readily available in a, in a small town to make it home. So this is something that we're that we're thinking about a lot. Um, and like I said, it's just the beginning of the conversation. But there's no doubt like that place where you can, you know, just put the day or as I used to say to my kids, like, 
like let the day go and they'd be like I don't want to let the day go and I, I get it but you know, like try to let the day go um, those places like that and it's very interesting even from your experience to say to know which one was kind of your your favorite place so then see how fast it goes we have five very short minutes left so um, and I don't really have long things to say at the end because I like to go right right to the end it, this is such valued time and I'm so grateful to both of you um, for the time you've shared with me tonight but your sources of well-being at Grinnell College what were those sources of well-being and of course this means how do we, you know, we don't have to define well-being, but I think of well-being as, you know, joy, respite, renewal, wonder, um, relaxation, gladness. As you can see, I, I do love the English language. So your places, your sources, the the actions, activities, spaces of, of your health and well-being. And again, you can speak from your own personal experience or from what you've accumulated. I think my spaces of well-being have most often been my friends dorm rooms i think that well-being for me at the college has always sort of been very entangled with like the people that i spend my time with um but i also think of places like the red and blue couches on the second floor of the jrc and you know like walking through the grill and running into someone or spending time in the psychology commons I think all of those places um, and all of those social connections there are the things that have lent themselves the most to my well-being at college. Yeah, I also definitely think about the people, um, especially my friends, um, but also like kind of mentor relationships mm. as well. Um, my boss actually at Disability Resources, she graduated um but actually all the are not graduated retired um she she retired from the college yes um <laughs> that's the word um like having kind of people that that act as a source of wisdom for me um has been really instrumental in in tough times when i've needed um kind of advice about things um but then also just like Burling Library um, and weirdly Noise, um, which is a building that I don't like, but also do. Um, <laughs> That's complicated. And is one of the, the places that is a maze and kind of feels cold and sterile, but at the same time, I've had my best memories wow. Um, wow. in that building. So. Wow. I, I don't know. I have a lot of good feelings about noise. Well, and you can just start to imagine about, you know, what it's like to come back, right? I, I always think about um, the temporality of a small liberal arts college, the four years of a student, the 40 years of a faculty or staff member, and then the perpetual return of the alum. You know, you're here and then you go and, and, and the idea of coming back. I just, I think of the layers of those spaces for you when, when you come back and, and all the incredible things you'll accomplish in your life. And then to say, you know, some of that started here. So I, I'm very interested, of course, you know, when we, when we think about spaces like Burling, if there's ever renovations to have student voices in there, because some of those spaces are, again, that kind of that respite, you know, and renewal so that you once more into the breach, right, you go back into it and, and you're making all those incredible contributions. So I am left uh, wonderful Molly and dear Kate with um, my great thanks to both of you. Of course, this is the very beginning of a conversation that you have set in motion with your leadership. Uh, and indeed, I see it as a legacy. I very much look forward to working with your successors um, on the Shaw Student Advisory Council. I'll probably reach out to you before you graduate for some words of advice um, about how we might proceed. But um, dear listeners, please join me in uh, thanking our wonderful, wonderful guests this evening, uh, Molly and Kate, and all of the colleagues and campus partners that they work with um, for health and well-being. Not a fixed state but always a goal. Thank you both so very much. I wish you well. Good night.